who believe, meaning all of those who believe. So we'll fill in the blank of what we believe in, but uh, that's, uh, I, I feel like I needed to start that with you this morning to get out a little uh, excitement, excitement to be here with you all. So thank you. Thank you for being here. We have a lot to cover. I can't wait to hear from you. So I'm going to speak fast so I can get to you. This is, uh, we're on Malacha 25. Okay, a reminder, because some of, some of you come every week and some kind of pop in and out, a reminder of what we're doing here. These are the malachot. We are trying, we are trying to ground our repair of the world in Jewish tradition. And there's ways that everyone has done it. Okay, there's Selim Elohim, humans are created in the image of God. Okay, there's Tzitzunolam, we want to repair the world. But we're taking a new approach here, and not that those aren't great approaches. We're trying to say that, that Jewish theology suggests that God creates the world with 39 actions, and the tabernacle is built with those same 39. And thus, Shabbat offers the opportunity to reflect on those 39 so that we return the other six days of the week towards repairing the world in a new way. This is kind of a radical idea, right? Because the malachos haven't been thought of this way. They're like kind of technical rules. Like some people will look at it, otherwise they're irrelevant. It's the boring parts where we read about the tabernacle and, and Leviticus, who cares, right? And here we're trying to re revive revive these texts and these ideas in philosophical and theological and Kabbalistic ways, such that they can uh, inspire us to rethink our, uh, our daily lives and most importantly, our, our Shabbat lives in whatever way we practice this. Okay, here we go. So now we're entering a new section. In the next seven malachot, the next seven are jumped together. We will look and discuss the hides, hides, H-I-D-E-S, the hides used in the coverings of the Mishkan. 
This set of malachot will introduce the deep questions regarding the human relationship with animals and the dignity of animal life and animal souls. The natural first step in producing these hides is to trap the animal, to trap the animal. And so our 25th malacha today, our 25th malacha is sud, trapping. The act of using a trap is a challenging malacha to codify into rules since it can be quite subjective. For example, closing a door on a bird that is loose could be considered trapping it, whereas closing a house door on a worm may not. So here's a question that applies to many people today. What about closing the door to a room where there's a dog or cat? Have we trapped the dog or cat? It turns out that trapping only applies to, uh, to wild or untamed animals. So a tame dog can be brought inside by its owner, but closing a door on a wild stray dog might be a problem because it would be trapping, unless it is to protect others from a violent dog, of course. On the Torah level, we're dealing with trapping when it's an animal that one wanted to kill, like a deer. You want to kill the deer, so you trap it. The rabbis extended this malacha also to animals that one wasn't historically trying to hunt, excluding those that could be dangerous to people, of course. One may, for example, place a cup over a bee if one fears being stung, or most obviously an animal that may be life-threatening, like a poisonous snake, <laughs> which is a, a, a reality here in Arizona. I recall living on a caravan in uh, the West Bank for two years, and one Shabbat, there was a wild dog, I mean, a huge beast, something you'd see, you know, a huge, huge beast and someone trapping it inside of a caravan. Um, and then there was a whole discussion around trapping the dog on Shabbat. Even when we wish to protect ourselves, we can do so more compassionately. Rabbi Moshe Feinstein argued that although it is permitted to kill insects, right? You see a mosquito in your house, Jewish law, you are permitted to kill that insect. It is better to kill insects or rodents by indirect means such as setting a trap rather than directly killing them with your own hands or using a something else as opposed to a direct hand. He suggests this approach is based on character development lest we become used to acts of cruelty, even though we need not be too concerned about compassion to mosquitoes. Nonetheless, on a character level, we, want, we don't want to condition ourselves towards taking life any life um, directly. Human beings becoming entrapped psychologically. In this connection to human beings become entrapped, Eckhart Tolle, the New Age thinker, offers a new interpretation of an idea emerging from Jean-Paul Sartre, the great French existentialist. Here's what he writes. I can't remember if we have a slide for this quote or not. It's not. He, Sartre, looked at Descartes' statement, I think, therefore I am, very deeply and suddenly realized in his own words, the consciousness that says I am is not the consciousness that thinks. What did he mean by that? When you are aware that you are thinking, that awareness is not part of thinking. It is a different dimension of consciousness. And is that, and is that awareness that says I am? If there were nothing but thought in you, you wouldn't even know you're thinking. You would be like a dreamer who doesn't know they are dreaming. You would be like a dreamer who doesn't know they're alive. You would be as identified with every thought as the dreamer is with every image in the dream. Many people still live like that, like sleepwalkers, trapped in an old dysfunctional mindset. 
that continuously recreate the same nightmarish reality. When you know you are dreaming, you are awake within the dream. Another dimension of consciousness had come in. Cole continues, at the core of all utopian visions lies one of the main structural dysfunctions of the old consciousness, looking to the future for salvation. The only existence the future actually has is a thought form in your mind. So when you look to the future for salvation, you are unconsciously looking to your own mind for salvation. You are trapped in fear, and that is ego. Okay, so what's happening here is that Toll is arguing, based on Descartes, that there is a cognitive capacity of, of thought. But consciousness is separate from cognitive thought, and that's why it can go beyond. And only if we access consciousness beyond thought, where we hold thought rather than thought holding us, can we actually be liberated from the entrapments of mind? Okay? So, so, so this idea of trap of entrapment in this halacha, excuse me, in this malacha is psychological. That we have dysfunctional old ways of thinking about the world. And only if we step beyond those thoughts and control them can we actually evolve and grow. And so what in the spirit of this malacha of entrapment. On Shabbat, we meditate on our, our thinking errors, our thinking entrapments that confine us, that confine us. It is frightening to be trapped physically, scary to be trapped psychologically, and frustrating to be trapped spiritually. Sometimes the most comforting thing, aside from being liberated, of course, is having someone else with us in that entrapment. The only thing worse than suffering with others is suffering alone. And so sometimes, even when we can't get out of thinking errors, um, even when we can't get out of thinking errors, um, we can share them with others. We can share them with others and realize that we are trapped in them even if we don't know a way out yet. It reminds me of that parable I've shared before, but I'll share it again because it's just so relevant that a fellow is traveling in the Hasidic story, a fellow is travel, traveling in the dark, dark forest and is so thrilled to bump into someone in the dark forest. And then they realize that neither of them know their way out of the dark forest. And yet they're still thrilled to be together because they can share that the path they walked on was not the pathway out. So too, when we are trapped, sometimes we don't know the way out of the entrapment, nor does the other person but merely walking together in the dark forest in an entrapment can itself be liberating. That itself can be the case for a case for community. Animal behavior, going back to animals now, animal behavior has much to tell us in this regard also. In 2010, scientists conducted an unusual and perhaps even touching rat experiment. They looked, they locked a rat in a tiny cage, placed the cage within a much larger cell and allowed another rat to roam freely through that cell. The caged rat gave out distress signals, which caused the free rat also to exhibit signs of anxiety and stress. In most cases, the free rat proceeded to help her trapped companion. And after several attempts, usually succeeded in opening the cage and liberating the prisoner. The researchers then repeated the experiment, this time placing chocolate in the cell. The free rat now had to choose between either liberating the prisoner 
or enjoying the chocolate all by herself. Many rats preferred to first free the companion and then share the chocolate, quite, though quite a few behaved more selfishly, proving perhaps that some rats are meaner than others. <laughs> How amazing that liberating those who are trapped may be a phenomenon built into the DNA of animals as well. The fact that more rats take more altruistic paths. Yet why do we trap others at all? By observing the phenomenon of mass incarceration, we see that we, that we trap human beings. We also know that through factory farming, animals themselves are often born and live their entire lives and trapped. Then we have the phenomenon of hunting. Indeed, a sport for some. Let's examine some of the history of this sport and the Jewish legal perspectives of trapping innocent animals to kill them for sport. <laughs> American history illustrates the destructiveness of indiscriminate hunting. Until the 20th century, there were no laws concerning hunting at all. However, after the extinction of, of, of once numerous species, such as the passenger pigeon and the near extinction of the American buffalo, mostly due to a military strategy to starve American Indians, along with hundreds of thousands of buffalo slaughtered by passengers riding in trains set aside for hunting, there was a rising sense that some wildlife needed protection. And eventually the federal government joined states in taking action. The Lacey Act of 1900 prohibited interstate commerce involving illegally seized wildlife. President Theodore Roosevelt, you like to say Roosevelt or Roosevelt? President Theodore Roosevelt established the first wildlife refuge in 1903. And in 1905, the Game and Bird Preserves Act laid the foundation for many wildlife preserves and refuges where refuges refuges where animals were protected from hunting. Then in 1913, the migratory bird law began to protect migratory birds on a federal level. And over time, hunters had to leave a hunting license or, or stamp to hunt waterfowl and endangered species. Until recently, protection has been at the core of federal policy on hunting. I say until very recently. Now, even this modicum of respect for the natural world appears to be in jeopardy over these last few years. Sadly, hunting remains a popular sport in America with over 10 million hunting licenses taken out each year. The blood sport enjoyed long ago by the pagan pharaohs and the Roman Colosseum continues to offend our humanity. Jewish law is quite clear on this issue. Rabbi Chesko Landau, an 18th century halakhic authority, forbids recreational hunting, which he considers to be cruel in light of the Torah prohibition against pain to animals. Among other considerations, he argues it's a waste of time. Rabbi Landau explains that in the Tanakh, we find recreational hunting as an activity that people of poor character, such as Nimrod and Esau, find pleasure in. The more virtuous leaders in the Torah, includes all three patriarchs and King David, tend to be shepherds rather than hunters. The Midrash teaches that Moshe, Moses, was chosen as the great leader precisely because of his compassion he showed to animals. Rabbinic source after source demonstrates that. Or furthermore, the Ramah, Rabbi Moshe Israelis, writes that one who hunts with dogs will not participate in the great feast upon the arrival of the Mashiach, of the Messianic arrival. The Talmud teaches that we should not walk in the cruel ways of idolaters by attending gladiator events or circuses or other events that use animals as fodder for entertainment. 
actually on a personal note, this was a transformative moment for me. Perhaps one of my first uh, animal welfare commitments, I, I was, I was uh, living in France and, uh, and I went to Spain and my friends who I, was travel who I was traveling with were going to a bullfight and, and, um, and, it, it, and I paused and I said, what happens at the bullfight? And it sounded like fascinating entertainment. Wow, I, I never would have an opportunity to attend such a thing. And then I paused and I said, you know what? I don't understand why I would enjoy that or how I would enjoy that. And it was the first moment where I, I chose to pass on something merely out of a concern for an animal. I'm embarrassed to say I was 21. <laughs> Rashi adds that included here is the hunting of animals by, by the means of dogs, all for the sake of merriness and frivolity. The Ramah teaches that hunting might be forbidden on weekdays as well as on Shabbat because of the ways of, frivol of frivolity. The Or HaChayim explains that humanity was only given permission to kill animals when necessary for food, but not for other reasons. Here I want to emphasize, Jewish law is clear that it is permitted to kill animals for food. Rabbi Shaul Mortira argued that hunting was forbidden due to the cruelty involved. Rabbi Shimshon or Fogro all also argued similarly that hunting is forbidden, that we should not follow the cruel ways of Esau. It's associated with Esau, Esau. Although the Torah refers specifically to hunting wild animals, it also explains that there their blood must be covered. Commentators take a number of different approaches to explain the reason for this mitzvah of covering the blood. Maimonides argues that this ritual is meant to distance Jewish practice from pagan blood rites that celebrate blood. He suggests that pagans would collect the blood after slaughter and eat the animal's meat while sitting around the blood. For Maimonides, we pour out and cover the blood to distance ourselves from these pagan practices of using blood to connect with spirits. Here's what Maimonides says. They imagined that in this manner, the spirits would come to partake of the blood before their food, while the idolaters were eating the flesh, that that love, brotherhood, and friendship with the spirits were established because they dined with the latter at, at one place and at the same time. This idea that blood was kind of transcendental. We are alive with our blood and you can witness the blood of the, of the deceased and this blood can be used in a, in a pagan worship to awaken spirits and to connect with them. Uh, because flesh, flesh is so dead. Kind of the, this, this interesting category. The Sefer Achinoch suggests that we cover the blood in order to refine our innate human character. The author of the Chinuch argues that if one were to become accustomed to merely slaughtering animals and immediately consuming them while their blood still lies before us on the ground, we might become even more insensitive to the world, numbed to quotidian violence. Thus, the mitzvah is present as an instruction to cultivate compassionate virtue. By the way, Christian does have this intense relationship to blood. Think about the bris mila. Think about the circumcision of, of little boys. Think about the menstruation traditions around how Jewish tradition celebrates and acknowledges and ritualizes women's and girls' menstruation. So there is, there's a lot to say about blood itself. And think about the idea of the ultra-Orthodox communities through the Zaka that when there's a terrorist attack, or not even a terrorist attack, that's the most obvious case in Israel, that they go and they suck the blood out of the basits or out of the concrete so that the blood can be buried along with the body as well. The idea that no blood be left behind. Rabbi Shimshon Rafal Hirsch takes a different approach to this mitzvah. 
He suggests that we cover the blood in order to distance ourselves from the animalistic essence of human beings. Animals kill other animals without thought, but as humans, we must be more elevated. According to Hirsch, we refrain from consuming the blood to demonstrate that we are not animals and to prevent the life force of the animal, the blood, from entering into our life force. As you know, one of the ideas of kosher meat is that the blood is, is removed, um, as opposed to kind of bloody meat found in non-kosher meat. This is one of the distinctions. Each of these approaches acknowledges that killing animals reflects an aspect of our own humanity. There seems to be a traditional discomfort with the reckless way other societies have handled this. Even further, there's an implicit demand that one be connected with one's food source. Thus, Jewish law and its underlying values completely rejects the norms of the factory farming industry as it exists today. Some may see these rules covering around covering the blood as a basic manner of food preservation, since it's evident that in ancient times that bloody meat spoiled quickly, whereas meat drained of blood and salted could be preserved without refrigeration. This would be helpful. Other cultures follow parallel principles, such as the Muslim halal meat of draining blood, which by the way, it's just worth noting that halal, the Muslims who observe halal can eat kosher meat. The kosher meat is more strict than halal, but it doesn't go the other way. Those who keep kosher can't eat halal meat. There's not enough, there's not enough uh, there. So halal is, is more lenient than, than the kosher tradition. Um, in fact, the halal symbol tells kosher consumers nothing at all. I, I, uh, I do have a dream of having a joint Muslim Jewish stamp that shows that uh, we've collaborated that something is kosher and halal, I think that'd be a cool partnership. In any case. And the old European and then American culinary custom of smoking and salting meat as well. The ancient Jewish sages obviously had more in mind than a meat inspection code. Similarly, bloodborne diseases such as rabies, malaria, hepatitis B, and HIV lead modern healthcare workers to be careful. Relevant knowledge is a modern development. Now, of course, it's worth noting that this whole COVID thing happened because of this kind of marketplace, street, street place consumption of animals, right? I mean, what was happening around uh, eating dog, eating dogs, eating cats, and eating animals in the street, and this whole idea of meat consumption and barbaric, kind of bracket the idea of is, you know, around what's barbaric and what's not, but I think we can at least agree, although I know cultural relevance like to say, hey, listen, the Chinese have their ways of eating meat, we have our way, let's be cultural relativists and not put shame on that. And those who take more, um, more, uh, less more morally relativistic approach will say there are some, some boundaries here around how animals are treated. And this idea that COVID and most certainly other pandemics will be created based upon meat eating practice. Without a doubt. Um, oh, I'm so sorry. Someone, I just saw for the first time that someone said my voice is going in and out. Is that happening a lot? Oh, I'm not even plugged in. Oh my goodness, I'm not even plugged in. Oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. That must have been horrible. I'm so sorry. I wasn't even plugged in. I'm just seeing it now. Oh, geez, I wish I knew. Um, okay, is that better? I am so sorry. That was, tw that was 20 Much better, thank you. Oh, I'm so sorry. I wish I knew. Uh, someone run in my office or something. I had no idea I wasn't even plugged in. Oh, I'm so embarrassed. I'm so sorry. Okay. Okay, let's keep going. This mitzvah is yet another attempt from the Torah to move us toward vegetarianism. The Torah did everything possible short of prohibiting the consumption of meat to make it very difficult to eat meat and distance ourselves from death. 
while those who are not yet vegetarians are no longer engaging in the traditional ritual of shame, pouring out the blood from before consuming meat to be reminded of the death that has been caused and of our own mortality. We might all take more steps to learn about the harsh realities of mass production of food today and how it's harming human health, animal welfare, and the environment. I suggest that the primary reason that Jewish tradition tells us to cover the blood is because we feel shame. In fact, the Talmud teaches that the mitzvah is from where the very concept of bizui ha-mitzvah, shaming the Torah, is derived. We look at the blood of the animal glistening on the ground or dripping down our hands and filling a pool upon the earth, and we feel profound embarrassment because we realize what we've done. That blood looks identical to our own blood, and we realize our own mortality and the fragility of our existence. All we can do in that moment is to rush to cover it up. Shame is not something that many politicians who are apathetic to such matters understand. The abject cruelty reflects a certain nihilism that permeates the ethos of self-interested politics in their quest to roll back even the most modest protection of animals. They display its ignorance and disturbing lack of compassion. We can only pray that with time and grit that the access to kill innocent creatures is stopped by the election of sensible individuals in government who respect and care for the basic welfare of animals. By thinking about not trapping animals on Shabbat, we can reflect on ways that we ourselves are trapped, the way other human beings may be trapped, and the way in which non-human animals may be trapped as well. We can emulate the divine in working for liberation for all. Of course, we may argue that confinement may be necessary at times, the confinement of certain animals, the confinement in the prison system. And yet, there is far more confinement of humans and animals that can ever possibly be needed. Okay, friends, I'm going to pause there um, on this topic. This topic, let's go to gallery uh, view. Uh, once again, I, I am uh, so embarrassed and, uh, and, and apologize um, uh, for the audio problem we had for the first 22 minutes there. Um, totally unacceptable. I'm so sorry. And I don't know why I didn't, I didn't see the sound. Um, so um, uh, anyways, here we go. Let's open up the floor. We got a good uh, 35 minutes. Okay, good. Hi, Rabbi Biller. Yep. How are you? Um, so I, I, I apologize. I was just able to sign in now for the last two minutes. Um, so we're talking about animals trapping. It, I hate to ask this question. What do you do in your mind about all this animal sacrifice in the Torah? How do you, how do you place that <laughs> mentally? And oh, if you don't answer that today, that's okay. Oh, for sure. I'm just trying to think if I can do it in under three hours. But yeah. all right, let me try to do it in five minutes. Okay. Okay. Thank you for asking that. Okay. So listen, I have gotten in some trouble in the world. I don't think I'll get too much trouble with this group here by suggesting that I don't yearn to return to a Beit HaMikdash and I don't yearn to return to Korbanot, animal sacrifices. Okay. Now, um, I take a middle ground where I still use the traditional liturgy that includes prayers for that to return. Um, and yet, um, I have kind of reinterpreted um, what that's ultimately about. So let me say a few things about that, because there's, there's a lot to say about that. So first of all, um, I do want to just honor um, that that is the traditional model. The traditional model is that we, we yearn for the Jews to all return to Eretz Yisrael. We yearn for the Beit HaMikdash, Beit Shlishi, the third temple to be rebuilt. 
and we yearn for the returning of the divine worship through Kor Korbanus, through Korbanot. This is powerful because this is the idea that God's presence can be felt just like in the Mishkan, can be felt in the Beit HaMikdash. This is a return back to the aspiration that Jews have held for millennia. This is, um, is um, a return back to the idea of a centrality, uh, a centrality of, of the Jewish community. Um, and, um, and I end weddings um, uh, acknowledging, as most rabbis do, that when we break the glass, we are acknowledging the korban, the korban, the destruction of the temple. And so I never want to dismantle something that is a traditional uh, foundation of Jewish thought. So I don't wish to dismantle the idea that it is true that Jewish tradition says there will be a third temple and that this is something to aspire to and yearn for. And I continue to say words of prayer that acknowledge that reality and that aspiration. Um, I also will say that if a third temple were to emerge and animal sacrifices were to return, that I would be in line to join the party. Okay, now all that being said, I now wanna state why I don't yearn for a third temple um, and why I think I wanna problematize that, 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 that traditional concept. First of all, <laughs> Who's going to be in charge? It's going to be men, not women. It's going to be the Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox, nobody else. It's going to be a return from rabbinic tradition back to priestly tradition. It's going to be a return from worship through prayer to worship through animal sacrifice. It's going to be a return from decentralized, diverse, global Jewish life to centralized worship. As you recall, the reason the reform movement chose to call synagogues temples was an idea that of a rejection of the temple as centrality. We want to decentralize the institution of temple. We can have temples in Cincinnati and in Phoenix and in Rio and, and in uh, Shanghai. We don't need a Jerusalem temple, right? Okay, it, it, so there was something subversive to the idea of calling these places temples. Um, uh, and, um, and, and, and we can go on. Now, to bridge the gap, and, and let me say one other thing, that I also think that even if it's a small aspiration, I just don't think it can be a central aspiration of Jewish messianism or Jewish utopia. What, what, what seems like, like a noble aspiration for, for redemption? Wiping away hate, wiping away anti-Semitism, racism, right? Wiping away gender inequality wiping away the, the global inequalities of, of poverty in the global South, right? Dismantling white supremacy, right? Moving away from the exploitative nature of, of business in the world. Fill in the gap of what it would look like to, to, to dream of, of a redeemed world. And I can't embrace a theology that says the pinnacle of that yearning is a temple with animal sacrifice. Now, to bridge the gap between the, the traditional thought I'm saying, that Jewish tradition says this is the yearning, and the progressive thought that says, huh, does that exactly jive with what I yearn for? We can have Rav Cook, And Rav Cook says, okay, well, there will be a third temple, and that will have a mincha offering. 
a flower offering and not an animal offering. Mm -hmm. Rev. Cook says there will be a flower offering. And that is a model where the, tradi the tradition is upheld of a centrality, and yet um, it, is, it is balanced out with um, what he considers to be. Now, Rev. Cook is interesting because he is an aspirational vegetarian, but believes it should be an aspiration, not a reality. So Rev. Cook eats meat on Shabbat, and he says, we dream of a nonviolent world, but that's not our world now. In a utopian vision, that would be the reality, and that will be manifest in the third temple reality uh, around animal sacrifice being abolished. Um, it's also worth acknowledging, in addition to Rav Cook, that Maimonides hints at this as well. Maimonides hints in the Mora Nevuchim, in the Guide for the Perplexed, that Jewish tradition, because of our Talmudic, our oral interpretation, is itself a progressive process, a, a religious progressive process. And just as we move from animals, human sacrifice to animal sacrifice, just as we move from animal sacrifice to prayer, so too we will move from prayer, not back to animal sacrifice, but towards silent, silent worship, a meditative type of worship mm -hmm. that goes beyond prayer liturgy. Now, of course, there is a stira in the Rambam. There's a contradiction in Maimonides because in his in his Mishnah Torah, he is very clear to codify animal sacrifice. But in his philosophy work, he implies or hints at that we may move beyond it. Let me say one last thing, and then I'll take pushback or questions or comments from Rabbi Biller and others on this. Um, the other thing I want to say is that um, on an economic level, animal sacrifice is no longer meaningful. It was very meaningful back then. It was meaningful existentially and economically. Existentially, you looked your animal in the eye. Now, I can't relate to this as a vegan, but I can relate to this as a spiritualist. You look your animal in the eye and you cut its throat and you watch life be drained from its body, right? And existentially, you experience the, the frailty and the mortality of, of, of life. And in doing so, you were to be spiritually shook and awakened to your own mortality in deep gratitude to, the, to divine life. And they viewed this as a spiritual activity in order to awaken oneself towards um, that gratitude and that mortality in a way that our food systems today don't allow us. So that's the first thing I want to say charitably about animal sacrifice. Um, but the second thing is economically, this was very meaningful, right? Today, people have mutual funds, they have stock, they have real estate, they have um, cash under their mattress. I don't know what people have today. You know, they have Bitcoins. Is that what it's called? A Bitcoin? You know, I don't know. What else do you have? I mean, uh, you know, people have these, uh, these, these investments. But, but the idea of non-physical capital is such a new reality. Right. If you own stuff, you owned land, you owned your home, you owned your animals. Right. Um, maybe you owned slaves back in the, a certain a certain time. Right. There wasn't property was very finite and very concrete. And the idea of taking my cow um, or taking my goat, taking whatever I'm taking, a limited number of them and offering them to the priests and offering them to God, which, by the way, this was also feeding people, right? Some of this animal sacrifices are, are burnt offerings. They are completely burnt. But most of them, the majority of the offerings 
were were eaten. They were eaten. They were they were part of the chag. They they were simchat yom tov. You ate the animal as part of the joy of the holiday. This was brisket. This was the brisket, the Pesach brisket, right? And so it was a party, and you fed the community. Some of them you fed the kohanim, you fed the priests. Some of them you fed the hungry. Um, and so this was also a chesed. There was a chesed. There was a kindness involved in this as well. Okay, Rabbi Biller, do you want to respond to that at all? Just, I'm so grateful for uh, how much you synthesized in that answer. So uh, that's mostly what I want to say. Thank you. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, just one other tiny thought is what's most precious to modern people is time. And so when we go to a service as opposed to taking a sacrifice, we're giving what's most precious to us. Beautiful. Beautiful. Uh, yeah, I love that. I love that. That when we attend a service today, I, and th- th- what a beautiful framing, that when we attend a service, we are giving our time over because time is um, indeed our greatest, our greatest asset in life. I take time um, over a cow any day. Yeah, <laughs> we give time, yeah, thank you. Thank we dedicate you. our time. So thank you for that. Yeah. And um, um, and that's also seen, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, who we mentioned earlier, he said to his yeshiva students, you know, you have to give 10% of your income, um, uh, you know, net income, not gross income, your, your post-tax income um, towards, towards, uh, towards furthering causes. Doesn't matter if you're poor, doesn't matter if you're rich, make it 10%. Um, but if, if you're a yeshiva guy, you, you don't work. <laughs> I know that's hard for us to understand, but you don't work, then uh, you, you don't have a means to do it. You give 10% of your time. So he had that idea as well. Now, Vicky's point over there in the chat is also really great. This idea of the of the Mishkan and of the Beit HaMikdash as a metaphor, just as we're dealing with the tabernacle and the Malachot as a metaphor as well in many ways. So too, this idea as well. This idea that our aspirations for realizing that world can be achieved through um, this idea of the Beit HaMikdash. And the Hasidic thinkers love this. The Hasidic thinkers over and over again tell us to make ourselves a Mishkan. Transform your heart into a sacred place. Transform. Well, we already saw this in the Shabbat table. The Shabbat table is built around the idea of being an altar. It is an altar. That is why we have bread, challah, challah, like the show bread, like we talked about in the first malachot. And that's why we dip the challah in salt because that's the salt offering, right? Um, you dip it, by the way, the idea, it's, it is not the correct custom. I never like to say correct customs because there's all kinds of customs, but the correct, the correct traditional custom is not to pour salt on your challah, but to dip your challah in the salt. It's a dipping process, not a pouring process. Um, in our family, we use agave instead of salt um, because in your first year of marriage, the custom is to, uh, is to dip your challah in honey. And so we said, oh, why just one year? Let's keep it sweet. You know, let's try to keep it sweet. So we use agave instead of salt. Um, in any case, um, the altar at home um, is the table. I, that's why I continue to believe that the most important Jewish institution is the home, is the home. Um, no, uh, nonetheless, and, and I think the pandemic hopefully can, 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 can uh, remind us of that. Um, but anyways, the Hasidic thinkers say, make your heart, make your, make your heart, make your body, make your soul, make yourself that. So this idea of a third temple, we can think of as, as on, on, a, on a micro level, the self, making ourself, giving ourselves, as Rabbi Biller said, giving ourselves over to a service, giving our time over. Um, on a macro level, we can think of as, as the global Jewish community or as the world. 
making the world into this place of offering. So thank you for that. And, and I'll say this also for myself, as, as we might all relate to this idea, but differently, but I think we can all relate to it. I consider myself a progressive traditional Jew, right? And that means I'm very interested and committed to Jewish tradition as a framework and progressive because I think that tradition is very malleable and very fungible and it gives us a lot of room to play with really keeping it in place, but also evolving it in ways that keep it in place. And I think this idea of keeping a third temple as an aspiration, but understanding that as a metaphor is a really powerful way to think of that. So thank you. Someone else. Hi, Shmuley. Um, I, I don't know if you know that the, last week, the EU court has banned, yeah, Shrita and Halal. Now, other than I'm pretty sure this is anti-Semitism, um, my understanding has always been, and, and I also do not eat meat, so I'd, I'd be happy if everybody were vegan, but my understanding is that shrita is mamash, the less painful way, and that it's done in such a way so that the animal suffers less than like being tasered or smacked on the head before... Um, what, do you have any comments on that? Do oh, you have a lot. Any? I have a lot. I, I, we know once you. again need, need four hours. I'm going to try to do it in five minutes. Uh, <laughs> but, but thank you, Lauren, for that. Okay, so there's a lot to say here. And um, here's the first thing I want to say. I would love to see a, a, a nonviolent world, of no violence towards anyone, and that would include um, uh, no consumption of animals. And, and, and I think that that pathway forward actually is not just legislation, but through corporate food offerings. Um, corporations who are creating food that will taste just as good or better than meat, because some people simply can't make that sacrifice. Some people feel so connected to their meat consumption that um, I think that the only way to make a transition is to have things that taste as good or better. Um, and even though I dream of that world, I have been vocally in opposition of the banning of shrita in Europe. Um, I've been openly uh, in opposition to that and actively in opposition to it and in conversation with chief rabbis in Europe uh, to counter that, just as I'm opposed to the banning of circumcision in Europe and in other places. And there's been, um, and, 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 one, one, and one way to distill that thinking for me is that um, uh, in terms of uh, religious freedoms, um, I, if, if those animal activists, those animal rights activists want to stop um, the, the, the mass consumption of animals, they don't need to go after the, the, the tiny minorities of Europe, the, the Muslim communities and the Jewish communities, and the, 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 the very small amounts of animals that they are killing over there through their religious practices. They should be going after the, the big beast of factory farming in general and, the, and the, hum, the inhumane practices that exist there. And so that's why I, I think those animal rights activists which uh, are very suspect of, uh, of anti-Semitism. Of course, not all of them. Many of them are just fighting, you know, um, animal consumption everywhere they see it. But I think they should lay off the religious minorities and tackle the big beast um, of, uh, of factory farming in general. Um, and I'm in conversation with leaders in Europe. I think who should be very worried about the rise of anti-Semitism in Europe. And I think the answer should not be move away. Um, I can't, I, I really, it bothers me so much when I have these Facebook trolls that when we talk about the Shoah and I have these comments from people who say, oh, those, basically what they're saying is those foolish Yidden, those foolish Yidden sort of should have seen the writing on the walls and gotten out of town, right? Blaming the victim for what they should have seen and why they should have fled in 1936 and 37 and 38. Uh, Cheryl and I are 
Cheryl in her great work uh, with the Jewish Film Festival. Uh, there's going to be a film over there about Joachim Prince, which you can enjoy, Rabbi Joachim Prince. And I, I'm, I'm having the privilege to say a few words about that. And he was expelled in 1937 um, rather than, uh, than fleeing himself. Uh, but there were voices who were calling to leave. And there were also um, good reasons to suspect that 39 was not going to go the way it went. Um, in retrospect, it looks so obvious. Nonetheless, we don't blame the victim. Uh, and today, even though the writing is on the wall of dangerous things, and I know in progressive circles, people don't like to point to, um, uh, uh, point to, point to Muslims, because I uh, believe very deeply in Muslim Jewish dialogue. I believe very much in Muslim rights and welcoming Muslim refugees into America, fill in the blank. And yet we know that it is not only white supremacists, white nationalists in Europe that pose a great threat to the Jewish community. It is also fundamentalist Muslims who, who, are, um, who are coming from fundamentalist Muslim countries who pose a great threat to the security of the Jewish community in Europe. And we can hold both of those realities care about Muslim security, cares about Muslim refugees, care about Muslims being welcomed into Europe, and be aware that, um, that the violent threats that are rising towards Jews in, in Europe um, uh, is very complicated and something that we who are concerned with the, with the global security of the Jewish community should, should be prioritizing and be aware that it is very offensive to them when we tell them the answer is Aliyah. They don't want to take the 600,000 Jews in France or however many are over there now. They don't want to be told, move to America, move to, move to Israel. That's their home, just like Phoenix is our home. And it would be offensive to someone to say, get out of town. It's, it's offensive to them. They want, they want partnership and collaboration. In any case, that was OK. So going back to your point there, Lauren. Um, so that, that's my long-winded answer as to why I oppose the banning of Shechita um, and why I would defend Shechita. Now, let me be clear, as I have been clear, um, and um, that uh, kosher is no longer the higher standard. It makes me sad to say that as a traditional Jew, and I've gotten into a lot of trouble saying that. I, I wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal, and the, and the kosher mafia, literally, the kosher mafia came after me. They tried to, they tried to, um, to publicly shame me. They tried to, to take away my career. They got people in my own circles to come after me. Um, um, and the Orthodox Union, um, it, it, it's a big problem. It's a big problem. So even while I'll defend these rights, there is so much money tied up in, in capitalistic uh, kosher systems today that, um, uh, and I've been one of the few who has publicly on a high level been critical of those and acknowledged that it's no longer a higher, a higher level um, that has gotten me in, into some trouble. Um, and so I, I kind of laid low on it for, for some years since, since that. Um, but let me lay out a few factors, and then I know there's other things to talk about. Okay. Um, number one, um, the worst thing about animal treatment, and this is the other reason why I'm against the banning shechita, the, the atrocious treatment of animals in factory farming, it is not about how they die, but how they live. Yes, the last two minutes are bad. It's traumatic and it's painful. But if you're born in a crate and you live your entire life in a crate and you never nurse from your mother, and you never move out of the crate, and you are tortured and beaten, um, and know nothing of any emotional or physical health. That is the worst part. Kosher systems say nothing about the treatment until you get to the final shechita. That's a problem. That's a problem. And so that's the first thing to say, is that the real problem is that um, uh, 
kosher meat was consumed into the larger American factory farming system and treats animals in the same way. And same with kosher milk. Okay, I don't want to get too much into this. Okay, now getting to shechita, um, getting to kosher slaughter, um, the, the, co- the kosher establishment is opposed to slaughter, to, um, to stunning an animal before, before slaughter. And the reason for that is not about Jewish law primarily, but because of the Nazis. Hitler, Hitler was a vegetarian. People, you know, anti-vegetarians love to say that. Um, those who are anti-vegetarianism, that Hitler was a vegetarian um, because it, it kind of shows the hypocrisy of vegetarianism or something. But I mean, can't vegetarianism still be a nice ideal, even though so, the most wicked person of the 20th, 20th century, you know, happened to, uh, you know, uh, embrace it. In any case, because Hitler was a vegetarian and the Nazis banned kosher meat because they said the kosher systems aren't aren't doing aren't doing stunning. They're not knocking they're not knocking the animal out before slaughter. Um, and the Jews resisted. The Jews resisted. They said we're not going to do it. We're not going to follow the Nazis on 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 stunning because of that cultural historical phenomenon. Um, it's too hard to overcome the idea of stunning before. However, I've written an article on why we can stun the animal after shechita. After shechita? What do you mean? The animal's already dead. They're not dead. It takes them 60 seconds, maybe 120 seconds to die. They're in pain on the floor. After the, 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 um, what happens in shechita is they slice the esophagus and trachea at the same moment for spiritual reasons. Um, and that is supposed to be a more painless way than other forms of killing. Um, nonetheless, they don't die instantaneously. There's pain after. And I, and I have suggested that right after the slaughter, they should be stunned so that they're unconscious for that last two minutes. And in fact, the Australia kosher establishments are doing that. They're doing that. Okay. I've said a lot. Vicky, you, Vicky wants to jump in. No, Vicky, I thought you raised your hand. No. Oh, sorry, sorry. Okay, someone else. And, and, okay, we've been talking a lot about animals. You can go there or we can go somewhere else. Um, in regard to animal sacrifice at the temple, my feeling is that Judaism then was very tribal. And the things that they did were in concert with all of the surrounding nations and people. They all had similar ways um, of reaching God. In some instances, it was idols, it was incense, they were material things. And what I see is an evolution in 2000 years of thought, we now have developed a practice in which our prayer can be jointly observed in a temple or can be individually observed. And it seems to me that this has to do with additional education. So to have an aspiration to go back to a third temple with sacrifices, that's not in my thinking. 
Mm -hmm. I, I much prefer, I think Vicki said to use this as a metaphor, although I'm not even sure I wanna use it as a metaphor. I think we should consider that we are evolving, it's a process, and the Judaism we practice today will not be the same as practiced a hundred years in the future. Okay, great. Uh, so just before Eileen's point, I'm going to say a few things that, that are over there on the side. Yeah, Cheryl makes a great point about um, the, the, the strange historical phenomenon in rabbinic tradition that chicken are considered meat. And thus, uh, traditionally, we say, you know, you don't, um, you don't put, you know, cheese on chicken, or, or whatever the case is, because chicken is also meat, um, which is very strange. Um, and I've never seen any momentum on viewing that differently. Um, and then Rabbi uh, Biller's interesting point there around veal. Um, yeah, veal is, veal is, you know, so as you know, you want to keep the girls alive, uh, the, the, the female cows alive because you want their milk, but you want to kill the baby males because um, that's why we get veal. They kill the baby males because they don't have milk. Um, and so you exploit the female uh, females uh, for much longer, and you and you and you kill the males for for veal. And uh, and those um, there's a lot to say about that. In any case, um, so to go to Eileen's point here, you know, it is an interesting question uh, in spirituality today around how much we need the physical to connect spiritually. Um, some people think of spirituality as meditation; they want nothing sensory. They close their eyes. There's nothing they can see or hear or touch. Others like the sensory and spirituality. They like music. They like the crashing waves. They like walking through the forest, right? They like touch, right? And in, in kind of um, neo-Hasidic circles today, there is a desire to return to nature, bonfires and camping and um, the concrete, um, even engaging animals in some ways. And I think this is going to raise questions about synagogue, right? Is synagogue boring for young Jews or is synagogue um, something to maintain? And what makes synagogue engaging, right? Is it better music? Is it better sermons? Is it, um, um, is it more um, uh, changes of pace, right? That you've got a three-minute attention span, not a 10 minute one. So you have to constantly be shifting what's happening. Is it more movement, more body? Is it more interpersonal, relational, more learning? These are interesting questions about the future of the synagogue. And, um, uh, and is it the walls themselves of the synagogue as opposed to going outside the walls? But part of this idea is saying, what can we learn from the animal sacrifice that was so powerful? This idea of doing something physically as a spiritual act right? I want to produce something. I want to engage with something. You want me to sit in my chair for four hours for, for Rosh Hashanah? I'm going to sit there with a book, right? Like that might be powerful for some. Like I love that sitting in a book for a, with a chair, sitting in a chair with a book for like, I would do that for all day if I could, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't have a lot of this flights. I mean, I can't sit still very well, <laughs> you know, but but I love, but, but I love that, like just reading and thinking and pray. Like, but I know a lot of people like they want to, they want to be moving. They want to be, you know, I, I mean, I, I shared with you a few sessions ago 
that I did this hit this um this um this meditation in uh, in it, when I when I was in India at this meditation center where um you ran in a circle you everyone ran for hundreds of people running in a circle looking at each other and if you think of the Muslim practice what's it called uh what's it called when you go to Mecca uh you go to Mecca and you you the Hajj you know the Hajj and what's it called when you everyone's moving around it's millions of people around the world um so do we have something like that in Judaism? Do we have some? Yeah, Simchas Torah. Simchas Torah. Yeah, Simchat Torah. You know, Simchat Torah, at least, uh, you know, you're dancing in a circle with the Torah. So everyone has a circle tradition. You know, you move in, in motion. You move around a center um, in a very interesting way. That 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 Indian practice, that that Mecca practice, that our Simchat Torah practice, which we don't do so often. Um, and, um, and, uh, uh, and 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 and, I, and I, one of the things we might ask is, what can we learn from animal sacrifice that was so powerful, and how can we incorporate that into spiritual spirituality today, right? What could people get up and do during a service, right? That would have them feel existentially alive, you know, physically uh, engaged. It's an interesting, it's an interesting thought experiment, you know. And some people might not want to do it, but some people might want to do it. I mean, I mean, I mean, anyone have any ideas? Yes, please, Carol. Dance. Dance. Yes, dance. Yes. Dance and music. I mean, that's that would be fun. Yes, you know, um, dancing is dancing is great, and um, and music is great, and. Um, for us to think about more ways to incorporate that, you know, I mean, I'll say, you know, one of the things that we do very poorly at BBM is prepare people for what is going to happen in the room that, that they arrive in. And we have people who show up at VBM who want to sit in a chair and listen to a lecture. And we have people that show up at VBM who want to dance. And I remember <laughs> last year we had one of our hippy dippy rabbis arrive because, you know, we have a balance. We have like boring academics who are really smart and I love them. And we have hippy dippy rabbis who are like way too hippy dippy um, and I love them. And, um, and, and, and we have that balance because people love different things. And one of these hippy dippy rabbis came and had everyone standing up around the table, dancing and doing, like touching each other. And one of these guys who was showing up for a lecture, he was way outside his comfort zone. I mean, you could have seen this guy's face. I, I felt so bad for this fellow. He's like, what am, what am I doing here? It's like, I didn't, I didn't know I was signing up for this, you know? And so we have to figure out this different personality types, different spirituality types, you know, and how to do this kind of thing. Yes, yeah, Cheryl. Um, isn't davening and the movements of davening and all the, I, I mean, we use uh, it, at our shul now, we use Lev Shalem, uh, the Sidor Lev Shalem. And in that Sidor, there's actually pictures of what the movements are supposed to be that, you know, all the shuckling and davening and bending and all of that stuff. Isn't, isn't that speaking to your point of movement? Yeah. Yeah. I love it. And, and, um, you know, and, and this is, um, this is uh, um, this is part of the problem of American Judaism's assimilation into the church culture. Church culture, you sit in your chair, you know? There's decorum. People want quiet. People want quiet in Jewish spaces. Now, like a church or a library, right? Kids are too disruptive. The Jewish space is loud. 
You go into the Beit Midrash. People are yelling. They're arguing. You go into shul. There should be kids running around. There should be people shuckling and dancing and moving. It's true. I, I mean, I love quiet spiritual spaces. But the Jewish communal space is supposed to be noisy. It's supposed to be noisy. It's supposed to be chaotic. And I and I think that um, we have seen this in all the denominations of American Jewish life. Um, this part of this assimilation into church culture, library culture, where we sit still. And the shuckling is so powerful. Moving our body ecstatically, ecstatically in motion, right, is, su- is such a powerful experience. And... Um, and, you know, I, I mean, I have come to love perfectly still prayer, but I also love ecstatic prayer. I love the ecstatic prayer. Yeah, Carol. Well, what about the black church? That's not. Oh, yeah. The black church is awesome. So maybe that's it. Maybe we need to follow our more black Jews, not to assume that black Jews are a part of black church culture, of course, but but um, but it'd be inspired by black church culture. You know, it's amazing. So some synagogues who bring in black gospel folks from Martin Luther King Day. Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And then you see it. The whole synagogue is like jumping around because the gospel, the way that they're singing and dancing is, is so different to what our, 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 our typical culture looks like. And maybe that's where we need to learn. You know, maybe that's where we need to learn. And, um, and the truth is we, we, we need a revolution of Jewish music. Okay. Karl Bach had a lot to offer. There's a lot to say about Shlomo Karl Bach. Um, Debbie Friedman had a lot to offer. There's lots to say about Debbie Friedman, but like, okay, we're in 2020. Who are the great Jewish musicians of 2020, right? You really can't name a lot. Okay. Th- there's some fine musicians, right? But who is creating a spiritual revolution through Jewish music? I would love to highlight that and amplify that because I find most of the new stuff to be, uh, I don't want to say anything critical, um, on a personal level, it doesn't move me to where I need to go which might be a problem with me, not with them. Um, but it, Or maybe that we're not amplifying those voices. But we, okay, I, I, I still use Debbie Friedman for Havdalah. I still use some Karabach Nagunim for certain things, right? I still like the traditional Kol Nidre. But we need a, a music revolution because music represents the zeitgeist. The music we listen to represents the worldview of the moment. And I love classical music. I love old style music. I love that stuff. But to be alive in 2020, we need music that speaks to this moment, this, yeah. this moment. And Jewish culture needs that music, right? And, you know, it can't just be that Hatikva awakens the Zionist consciousness. It can't just be that some of those, those people I, I mentioned awaken, awaken the soul. We need to experience this. We need to have, we need to have think tanks open spaces of experimentation with our own soulful music. And each of us can do that in our own spiritual practices. So friends, here's, here's what I want to close on. We, um, we talked, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, Mattis Yahoo was, was, was fasting. Some of these other folks. Yes. Yank Yehuda. Thank you for those ideas. Nisim Black, if you're into rap, God Elbaz, um, Eitan Katz. There are brilliant things happening. I don't want to diminish that. Brilliant things that are happening right now. And in Israeli culture has so much more than American Jewish culture. Um, and, um, um, but I just want to say um, um, that today we're talking about trapping. We're talking about trapping and we, we are looking for a world, again, Shabbat consciousness, not in, in a broken world where there's going to be entrapments but a world where people and animals are liberated from confinement. And on a personal level, we are spiritually entrapped. American Jews are spiritually entrapped within a tradition, a frozen tradition. 
We are accessing 1970s Reform Judaism. We are accessing 1980s Conservative Judaism. We're accessing 18th century Polish shtetl Orthodox Judaism. We are living in frozen frameworks that are not alive to the moment, alive in, in relationship to that tradition. And that requires a lot of spiritual awakeness. But here's the problem. We go to synagogue because we want the reliability the familiarity. The worst thing the cantor can do if he doesn't want his or her head cut off is change the melody. Change the melody. What are you doing? I love that melody. Well, I, I, and, and they call it the traditional. They say use the traditional melody. Traditional melody. You want the one from 1960s? You want the one from 1972? The traditional melody to 9 from 15 too? What do you mean? We don't have any traditional melodies from the 18th century or not to mention like 2,000 years ago. We don't have a Masora. We don't have a tradition of melodies. We lost it because there were no recordings. We didn't have some things. You can feel the energy that's kept alive, but people want the tradi traditional. You know, they want Barbara Streisand. That's a traditional melody. Okay, tradition. I want the traditional one, Barbara Streisand. It's hilarious, you know. So, anyways, friends, a spiritual awakening. I would love to think about a spiritual think tank we can launch together, where we experiment with uh, breaking out of our entrapments. Make Judaism come alive. Come alive in learning, come alive in experimentation in ways that we and Jews of all ages and experiences could, could, could release themselves. Friends, have a wonderful day. Have a wonderful day. I can't wait to see you next week. Sorry for uh, uh, all my tangents and the audio in the first 20 minutes. See you soon. <laughs>